You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. Today's episode was brought to you by Blueheart, the easy-to-use, expert-designed app for couples who are experiencing difficulties with libido, one of the most common sexual challenges that couples come up against. Blueheart are challenging the taboo around the subject by making getting help and advice more accessible. Blueheart is removing some of the barriers to make sex therapy possible for everyone. They offer expert-led therapeutic techniques, activities, education and guided conversations, all from the app so that you can prioritise your relationship and sexual well-being in a way that works for you at your own pace. The Blueheart app is available to download now on Android and iPhone. Today we're going to be talking about sexual trauma and how it can impact sex lives and relationships. But the whole point of this conversation is to be informative, to educate and also to help people who feel like they are struggling with those experiences to learn more about them or to know what advice they can seek or how they can help to get help for that. My guest who I'm going to be talking about this with is not just a colleague of mine, but also a really good friend. We've worked on numerous projects together. I call him my work husband. Um, And he is an author, a psychosexual and relationship therapist, and also a trauma and EMDR therapist. So it can only be Silva Neves. And Silva is really, really experienced in working with this as a topic. He has a huge breadth and range of working with clients and different conditions and presentations and is for me you know one of my most trusted resources on trauma as a subject so Silva thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with me. Thank you Kate thank you for inviting me it's a pleasure to be here. And I guess this is such a massive topic isn't it and one of the things that we also know is that trauma is subjective you know what is traumatic for one person might not be for another but also that we don't just consider trauma in terms of single kind of one-off events, although we can, but f- sometimes people might have had numerous or layered traumatic events, you know, over a longer period of time. And so although we can have single one-off traumatic events, we can also have a pattern of traumas. We can also have a history of traumas, a multiple of traumatic experiences. But before we even go into the topic of sexual trauma, how do we even define trauma? Good question, because trauma is really quite subjective and not everybody understands trauma the same way. So really the broader way to understand trauma is an adverse uh, event that is left somebody wounded, basically. Um, Mostly we understand it as psychologically wounded. And that's kind of like the broader version of Uh, the definition of trauma. So it could be anything that um, doesn't necessarily is like a big accident, for example. It can be something that could be quite um, what we would, most of us would deem small. But if the person experiencing it has experienced it as um, a wound that hasn't healed, then that can be a trauma. And so um, it can be anything from um accidents or uh, difficult relationship with parents, difficult relationship with partners, bullying, um, going to boarding school. Um, 
all the way to a pet dying or a, a close friend or somebody that you love um, dying unexpectedly or um, witnessing a violence in the street, even though it wasn't directed directly at you, um, to sometimes just some things like mistakes that maybe parents have made when you were very young that were really not intentional to be harmful, but the person remembers them as something that was wounding. And also we can experience trauma from thinking that something's going to happen, right? So if we nearly had a huge accident or we nearly narrowly missed a, for example, diagnosis of something or we got misdiagnosed or we, um, yeah, I suppose that the example I'm giving is if we can narrowly miss, for example, a quite severe injury or accident, just the fact that we've narrowly missed it can in a way bring up those traumatic memories because it's the anticipation of what was about to happen to us and we can kind of imagine how that might have gone. Yes, that's right. Sometimes what traumatizes us is not what actually did happen, but what we imagine could have happened. And if we, if our imagination goes into a place of, I am powerless and I could die, um, that can just in itself be a thought or an imagination that can be traumatizing and leaving then people quite hypervigilant to the next uh, danger area. Mm. And we also see... Um, we'll, as we'll get onto sexual trauma, but we also see things like birth trauma. Mm. Yes, that's right. And, you know, many births are quite complicated and quite difficult. And sometimes um, people can really experience their birth as, as traumatic if there's been a lot of issues. You know, somebody giving birth is already in quite a vulnerable state uh, to start with. And if something doesn't go as planned, um, it can be um, very easily turned into a traumatic event. Mm. And I did a training a few weeks ago with an amazing organisation called Make Birth Better. And a lot of what they were talking about is the, the from therapist's perspective, we shouldn't just be focusing on just the, the birth itself, if it was traumatic, but thinking what might have led up to that event. And I think it was something that really got me thinking about how those traumatic experiences, although they might um, present as isolated, actually, you know, often aren't isolated at all because they are happening in the context of, of someone else's life or the context of everything else that they've got going on. And that includes their perception, their feelings, their thoughts. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yes. And, uh, you know, in terms in the context of birth, there's a lot of uh, people put a lot of pressure on themselves to have a perfect birth or, or a perfect smooth process because it also... Um, they associated with um, them being uh, good parents or even being a good woman. You know, if you're a good woman, then you should be able to give birth properly, uh, smoothly in mm. the right way. And sometimes th those things are, they, they shouldn't be associated, obviously, but they are often associated. And, and, th and then that's what usually then stays alive in people's mind that as a wound, as a traumatic wound, is not so much about or oh, this happened at the time of birth, but more about I am defective as a woman. And that is usually what stays, um, what people find it more difficult to deal with. Mm, because it doesn't go in line with the narratives that we 
feel are, are present or are around us. That's right, yes. And in fact, with lots of other traumas, often um, the actual event is not the most traumatic, traumatizing part of it all. Uh, I hear very often that uh, what is most traumatizing for people is what didn't happen afterwards or what did happen afterwards and so it's really sometimes you you can be experiencing a really really bad trauma but if there has been a a soothing straight afterwards that trauma doesn't necessarily stay a traumatic uh, event in in people's psyche but if uh, there was no soothing afterwards then that's when the trauma can become bigger and bigger in people's mind and and then turn into a post-trauma stress issue. So for example, you know, a lot of the time I hear things like, yes, uh, an accident happened or something terrible happened, but then but then I wasn't believed afterwards, or my parents mm. dismissed me, or, um, or uh, you know, then I, I, I returned home to an empty house. Those kind of things are usually what um, makes a trauma worse. Mm. So actually, it's not just the event itself, it's kind of how we deal with it or cope with it or how others respond to it or feeling supported or I suppose being given an opportunity to I don't I want to use the word deal with it but it doesn't um feel like the right phrase I don't know what the right one might be um but I suppose to process yeah to process and to soothe and to process yes Mm. And and when we talk about sexual trauma, which is obviously something that comes into our, our therapy rooms a lot as psychosexual therapists, um, relationship therapists, how do we define that? And what are some of the different types of sexual trauma? And I mean, I guess, you know, obviously we have, we've, we've mentioned one, which is, you know, not directly sexual, but relates to our sex lives in a big way, which is um, birth trauma. But, and uh, I suppose paired in that kind of category we also see um for some people the trauma of miscarriage or of mm-hmm. stillbirth or trying to conceive yeah. or IVF um those infertility a lot of those processes but when we I suppose are talking about sexual trauma it is to do with sexual experiences being traumatic yes um of course the when we talk about sexual trauma the the main one that uh, we see would be a, a therapist anyway would be sexual abuse uh, mm-hmm. sexual abuse either that happened in childhood or uh, even in people's adult lives um rape is uh, usually the word that we use for uh sexual abuse that's happened in adult uh, adulthood um, we have uh, a lot of invasive surgery also that can be sexual trauma. Uh, sexual trauma. We don't, we don't talk about that very often, but it could be consensual or non-consensual invasive surgery. For example, uh, if somebody has breast cancer and they have to have the breast removed to stay alive, then that is, uh, could, could be a sexual trauma. Uh, although it's uh, necessary and it's consensual, you know, they, they consent to have their breast removed, it's a sexual trauma. But sometimes it can be non-consensual too. And um, uh, say, for example, circumcision is not often considered, we don't often talk about it being non-consensual and we don't talk about it being as a sexual trauma, but a lot of people experience circumcision as a non-consensual event that's leaving people... Um, with a sexual trauma. And of course, one that is now, um, certainly in the UK, we consider to be a serious crime is female genital mutilation. Mm. Then we have 
accidents on genitals uh, or genital areas, for example, a very common one is a bike accident where um, the uh, the penis gets injured, for example. That, that is also classed as a sexual trauma. And um, a sexual betrayal can be a sexual trauma. So uh, finding out out of nowhere with no preparation, finding out that uh, your romantic and sexual partner has betrayed you uh, with somebody else, with sexual contact with somebody else against your consent. So that can also be classed as a sexual trauma. Mm. And I suppose something that I feel that I've spoken to a lot of people about or has come into my therapy room a lot is negative sexual experiences that are experienced as traumatic as well. So whether someone is very drunk and wakes up the next morning or has a non-consensual experience or um, has a, for example, women who have vaginismus or conditions where they are unable to have intercourse, they want to have a sexual situation with a partner and they don't actually know that that's what they're struggling with and it can be very painful or it can be impossible and that can be experienced as traumatic as well because they might not even have a name for those symptoms at that point in time and might just think that that's how things are or it might be their first sexual experience, but then they experience that um, event as not just traumatic, but also confusing, upsetting and physically painful and that there might be a, an impact on what's going on with their, with their partner as well. Yes, that's right. Um, we hear often the, the people's first sexual experience that can just go wrong because a lot of people want to have their first sexual experience, but they don't have uh, any uh, adequate sex education. And so it's they just don't know what they're doing. And then something happens, for example, either there is, uh, as you say, a painful penetration or something that's happened, but without really talking about it properly. So another, so the uh, one of the per people feel like it's been done done to them um, mm. and and that all of those things can be most definitely uh, sexual trauma um, as well as as you say you know people uh, that have had um, you know uh, with vaginismus for example um, who experienced a lot of pain uh, that that often is something that stays um, in people's mm. psyche. And uh, yes, that issue of, you know, you go to a party and you drink a bit too much alcohol, then you're not really properly consenting to sex and something happens and the next day you think, oh gosh, that's happened, it, it shouldn't have happened. And that's when people are really, really confused about, you know, often blaming themselves or maybe I shouldn't have done this, I shouldn't have drunk so much, but not really realizing that perhaps it was also something to do with the other person taking advantage. And it's a very, it's very, very uncomfortable if the other person is, say, for example, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, um, to make that experience with the label um, sexual trauma or even abuse. Mm. And there was one other thing that I wanted to add, which we didn't really cover there, which um, is sometimes people who've had sexual experiences then find out that they have caught a sexually transmitted infection and that can feel very traumatic for some people. And it might be from a first sexual experience or it might be um, a diagnosis or a health implication, but that is something that I have, a conversation I've had multiple times with people, that they feel that that is almost like a... a a physical manifestation of something very shameful 
going on for them. That's right, yes. And I don't know about you, but it seems certainly in my room that um, not all STIs are equal. So, for example, um, people that might have contracted gonorrhea or chlamydia doesn't seem to be, um, they don't seem to be um, feeling so shameful about it compared to something like herpes, for example. Mm. Herpes is something that because it's because it can't be cured, it feels like it's something that people find disgusting and they find it really awful and shameful and, and they can left feeling that they, they have become disgusting. Um, and, mm. and there's a more physical manifestation with the herpes virus. Exactly, yes. And, and of course, HIV, which is one of the, one of the biggest TIs, although now it's well managed with medication, it is not, um, you know, it is not curable. And so people can experience uh, a trauma at the moment of diagnosis because it is a life-changing diagnosis. Mm. You know, I feel like we're, I mean, as we, as we know, this is such a huge topic. I feel like I'm, I don't even know, we'll even cover a corner of it in this conversation, but what are the common ways that sexual trauma can manifest or the symptoms, I suppose, that we can see of sexual trauma? So, the well, there's quite a lot, but the main symptoms, um, one of the most common one is what we call hypervigilance. And so hypervigilance is about being overly anxious about the uh, trauma event repeating itself or happening again in the future. It could be a hypervigilance of not being able to trust any longer, whether it's trusting life, trusting the world that we're living, or trusting people. It could be trusting people that are close to us or trusting even strangers. And um, and sometimes it can just be, um, as part of hypervigilance, feeling really quite jumpy or quite uh ill at ease in in most situations feeling like the body is always kind of like contracted and always looking for where the next danger come from so that's mm, on high alert all the time right high alert all the time and that is really one of the uh one of the first kind of cluster of symptoms that's really quite common um another one is what we call dissociation and dissociation is very much the the, the brain and the body's way to stop feeling pain and especially physical pain and that's mostly um that's mostly related to people who have been uh, raped or sexually abused, where the body has um, suffered a lot. So then the the, the brain uh, does that dissociation, which means that then it's very hard for the body to feel again. But at the same time with dissociation, you turn off all the feelings. So you, you don't get to feel emotional pain either. And, uh, and for some people, that dissociation becomes their primary way of being and that can create a lot of uh, impairment in people's lives because they just really stop feeling anything so they often people say i just exist but i just don't know i just uh, i just can't really find my way through life anymore mm. and of course it creates so it's a numbness a numbness yes and it creates a lot of problems in the sexual area obviously because people when they get touched they just don't feel the pleasure any longer um, and so that's one another one big cluster. And the third big cluster is what we call flashbacks. And flashback is probably one of the most distressing symptoms of uh, sexual trauma or trauma in general. And that's when um, you get um, memories of the traumatic event, but not because you want to call them up. They they come up involuntarily. Involuntarily. I don't know how to say that word. Involuntarily. <laughs> 
Um, uh, and and sometimes it's because there's a specific trigger that gets that uh, memory to come up. But sometimes people just don't even understand what the trigger is, and things can just come up at any point, at any time, uh, during the day when they're fully awake. But sometimes also in in acute nightmares, and that can be very very scary. And because at that moment it feels like the trauma is happening again, uh, right right now and and sometimes it's it's the memory that's um like a full memory like people feel they're back in that trauma but all the times it can be bits of the memory so it couldn't be it could be maybe seeing something that's part of the trauma like a visual a visual thing or it could be just smelling something an intrusive smell that is part of the trauma the traumatic event even if it happened 20 years ago it feels like they can smell it just right there and then and for some it's the sound uh, others, it's feeling that the body is being touched again, the way that it was touched in the traumatic event. So all of that stuff, because it feels so real, those flashbacks are um, usually really uh, impairing people's lives, and and it's very scary when that happens. And that will be probably the the when people get to this to that stage where people really think, okay, I I need to go to therapy. And those, those kind of cluster of symptoms, they can happen in different types of intensity as well. So for some, it will be, you know, maybe something disturbing happening once or twice a year, but actually most of the time they can live a life being, being totally fine. Other people, they might experience a bit of dissociation or a bit of hypervigilance, but not to the level where uh, it stops them from living a life. And to, for other people, it can be so intense that um, they are not able to live a life. They're not able to sustain a job. They're not able to sustain relationships because they have too much uh, flashbacks or too much hypervigilance or too much dissociation. And that's when, in terms of the kind of diagnosis, if you will, that's when it goes to the disorder area of post-traumatic stress. Mm, I was about to ask you about that and the point at which we kind of clinically diagnose as post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes, that's usually you, you. You would think of the disorder when the symptoms are so bad that this that they significantly impair people's lives, all the kind of the, the daily functioning of life. Mm. And do we have any useful or st- do we have any statistics that even show how widespread trauma is? Do we have any? I mean, I imagine. This is something that's so difficult for us to even study, apart from perhaps in kind of particular groups, mm. analysing particular experiences. But I mean, I, I'd hazard a guess the numbers are pretty, pretty shocking. Yes, I mean, there are, there are some statistics. And of course, there are the statistics of what we know in terms of the reporting. So they are probably uh, an underestimate. But some of the statistics that we have at the moment is that... Um, 90%, so that's nine zero, right? 90% of uh, children that have been sexually abused and also 90% of adults that have been raped uh, have uh, happened, have perpetrator who, who knew them. So that is really significant because what it means is that most people who have been sexually abused, children or adults, is by somebody they knew and often by somebody they loved. And that's because usually for the, you know, in sexual trauma, in sexual abuse, what we see a lot, uh, and that's actually part of the trauma that people find very difficult to process, is that there's usually a grooming process that happens before the sexual abuse. That the grooming process is somebody 
manipulating somebody else into loving them before they can abuse them. Because once there's there's a loving relationship, then it means that the abuse is much easier to to do, and it's much easier to silence that person because there's a relationship, and it's much easier to repeat the abuse uh, without being caught. So that's terrifying, really. But 90% is, is quite a lot. Um, and in terms of numbers, uh, what we have at the moment is that it's the uh, sexual assault after, from the age of 16, so we're not talking about childhood now, but from the uh, from uh, age 16 and above, it's 20% of women and 4% of men who have experienced sexual assault. So that's esti- an estimated of 3.4 million women and 631,000 men. So that's quite a lot of people. And also another frightening statistics, and it's from the Home Office UK, um, five in six victims, and so that's 83%, did not report to the police. And that's also quite significant because we have to wonder why there's such a high percentage of people not reporting to the police. And I think one of the things is, of course, something to do with shame, something to do with guilt, um, especially with women, because, I mean, at the moment, especially we talk a lot about that, that women are blamed for their behaviours. And, to, you know, be, women that have been sexually abused can be blamed for their behaviours, like, oh, you wore, you wore a too short skirt, for example, or you got too drunk, and that's why, that's what it happened. And because of that fear of being blamed, they just don't report it to the police. But also the the system at the moment, as I understand it from some reports from my clients, the, the police reporting system is pretty rough and often not really done in a way that is uh, conducive of, for, of people disclosing really, really, really traumatic moments um, quite safely. Mm, so that that bit you were talking about earlier about not just the trauma itself but how it's dealt with afterwards or processed afterwards or soothed afterwards that that is by the sounds of things not really happening for lots of people yes that's right so you know if you just put all those stats together and and knowing that they are probably still quite an underestimate um it just makes anyone that has sexual trauma and especially when it's to do with sexual abuse how very very complex it is and when people come to our therapy room it will be just dealing with all of that not just dealing with the actual event but what did happen afterwards or did not happen afterwards and and those relationships um that might have been broken um you know that that sense of it's somebody that loved me somebody that loved me did that to me or somebody that i loved did that to me that is in itself a relational trauma that is very, very hard to process. It is possible to process in therapy, of course, but that's really a very painful part. Mm, And I suppose what it does, what we see that it does, is it means that people are then, it then provides a a barrier to a loving relationship again or fear that being in a loving relationship again comes attached to trauma, comes attached to those feelings, comes attached to those reactions because that is our learned experience or that is the experience that we have had and it can feel very challenging to disentangle loving relationships and trauma if that if that's the case exactly yes and especially if it happened um early in childhood 
um, you know, so for some people, they have been sexually abused by their very first primary caregivers. And, you know, when you think about that, you know, when people become adults and you say, you know, the very the person that should have loved me unconditionally more than anyone else in the world, like my mother or my father, for example, are the ones who sexually abuse me. How can I begin to trust somebody else to love me and to not mm. hurt me? Right. It's uh, it's pretty it's pretty horrendous, really. Mm. And but for other people, even even if they had, you know, good childhood, you know, if they say in their adult life, they fall in love with somebody and they think that person is really wonderful and they're going to do um, right by them and then suddenly a rape happens. Um, that can also be very hard then to uh, trust trust another another human being. And for other people, it's also trusting life to think, you know, a lot of people um, are left after trauma thinking, I'm a good citizen, I did everything right in life, and this happened to me, and life isn't fair, and I'm, I'm just going to stop mm. trusting life. And what, what kind of behaviours do we see in people who are feeling this way? What behaviours do we see? Because I suppose we've talked about how these things might manifest in terms of symptoms, but what we also know is that people, well, as humans, we develop behaviours in order to cope. We mm. develop coping strategies, we develop mechanisms to to manage our feelings, how, what, what are the common things that we might see or, and I guess also a part of this conversation is aimed to be helpful for not just those struggling with their own sexual trauma, but it might be people who have loved ones who they fear have had an experience like this or they know have had an experience like this. And so thinking about what behaviours they might be seeing and trying to understand them a bit better. Yes. Um, so well, quite a few things, really. Um, for some people, they just avoid relationships altogether. So they will be um, saying to themselves, I only have myself to fend for. Uh, I can't trust anyone. So I'm just not going to be in a relationship. I'm just going to do my own things all the time. Those are the people that some, you know, the society calls them maybe loners or um I don't know, stuff like that. And and for some people, actually, that's their best way to live a good life and the best way to to move through life is to just not engage in relationships. And, you know, if if they can find some kind of contentment with that, why not, okay? Let's not pathologize that. Um, but uh, for some other people, they might want to have a relationship, they might want to be loved or to love, but they would do something like what some of my clients call and then becoming hard to love. And so it means that some people will maybe uh, date somebody and, and see somebody for quite a while, but then they will try to find every single fault in that person that then informs them to say, they're not the right partner for me and I'm going to leave. So, uh, and sometimes it can be like really, really minute things like, oh, uh, she smiled the wrong way or, you know, he he wore the wrong trousers today. You know, some so, some things like this. And so, oh, uh, therefore, I can't, I can't be with them. And mm -hmm. so it can be things like this. Uh, it can also be things like push and pull, push and pull. And so, you know, love me, love me, love me, give me, you know, all these things. And I'm going to make a lots and lots and lots of demands for you to always meet my needs every time. And that one moment that you are too busy to meet my needs, I'm just going to be furious at you. And I'm going to tell you that you're terrible and that you don't love me. And 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 that those kind of like big 
kind of anger explosions will sometimes push somebody away. And if they push somebody away enough times, that and then the other person might actually start to think, you know, I'm giving up here because it's just it's just not possible to get close to you, or it's not possible to be around you and not and not be forgiven for a mistake I make. And when that person leaves, then it reinforces their message of, you see, nobody loves me, I knew it, or nobody's good enough for me. I knew it. And then they just continue the pattern with the next person and the next person and the next person. So it reinforces their belief system or their, their position. That's right, yes. And uh, for other people, it could be the, that they will be with somebody, but they will always be with somebody at a distance. So they will be like, you know, yeah, I can, I can stay with you, but don't, don't come close. Just don't come close. And in some type of relationship, that can work. You know, sometimes if the other person is also quite happy to have their own space and their own time. But with some uh, relationships, it can really cause a conflict to say, I'm only here and I want to get close to you because that's really, I want to show you love. But when I show you love, you push me back. And so again, that's the uh, push and pull, but in a way of somebody keeping somebody at arm's length rather than demanding all the love and then exploding in front of them. Mm. And I suppose what we have to understand about these behaviours is they're not necessarily conscious, are they? But also they are protective and defensive. You know, this is our way of protecting ourselves against never feeling the way we did before. Yes. So although they might appear to not make sense in the real world or in practice they might make complete sense in terms of you know the unconscious processes we're going through which are i have to keep myself safe or i can never feel like that again or i never want to go back there exactly or, that hurt me so much i never ever want to feel anything close to that yes traumatized people uh, their priority above anything else is to keep themselves safe and so mm-hmm. uh, so and and to protect themselves against so much hurt um, and so uh, that will they they will just do anything whether it's about you know really try to control the environment the environment very much so that if they feel in control nothing bad's going to happen to uh, those kind of uh, push and pull um, yeah it's all to do with keeping themselves safe so if we look at it from the point of view of okay well it doesn't make any sense that you know I'm giving you love and all you do to me is pushing me away. But of course, if you look at that through the lens of a big wound that is trying to heal and that the, that person does not want to be hurt again, then often it makes a lot more sense for the partners. Mm. And also it's about understanding that that feeling of love for that person doesn't, you know, comes with, comes attached to the risk of feeling all of the other feelings again. That's right, yes. And and for people that are traumatized, often one of their main protection is not is to is to not be vulnerable. So and instead to be um uh, on the defensive, because if you're defending yourself, you don't have to be vulnerable in that moment. So it's very difficult for somebody who's been traumatized to say, um, don't come close because I hurt when you come too close, or I feel afraid when you come too close. Most people will say, don't go don't come near me just go go away 
leave me alone. And of course, when it's the partner hearing that, they will hear the defense only and they will hear rejection and they, and they, and they might get hurt too. But if they try to hear it as this is the other side of vulnerability, you know, that, that defense is coming my way because underneath there is a vulnerable part that is, that is afraid right now. Mm. And, and you just kind of led me beautifully actually onto um, one of my next questions, which was, how do we talk about this with partners? How do people share their story with a partner, you know, communicate about their trauma or their sexual assault? Because, I mean, lots of people might, for example, particularly in a new relationship, not want to tell their partner you know I've often heard the line like I don't want to talk to my partner about it because I don't want to scare them off I don't want them to think that I'm damaged or that I don't want them to see me that way I don't want them to see me as the word we hear a lot a victim I don't want them to see me as um I don't want them to see me as traumatized you know I'm in a new relationship and I'm seeing myself kind of reflected in someone who doesn't know though that part of my life who doesn't know those experiences and I don't want them to but how, if someone does want to share a story with a partner, you know, share their story, share their experience, or talk to a partner about this so that their partner can understand, how, how do they go about that? Because for me, that feels absolutely terrifying. And I know that it's a huge hurdle for so, so many people. Yes, that's right. A lot of traumatized people, they will carry that shame of I'm broken, I'm damaged. And so, of course, they're not going to want to show that to a new partner. I mean, one of the first thing I say is actually you don't have to share your story. OK, mm -hmm. especially to somebody new, because if you're going to be sharing your story, it can be re-traumatizing. So it can actually encourage flashbacks if you do it in a way without being too too prepared or too ready. So sometimes the best thing is not to share. But also, if they want to share the story with their partner, they have to make sure that the partner is will be able to hear it. Because a lot of people are not able to hear traumatic stories, either because mm -hmm. it reminds them of some of their own stories or because people find it really difficult to hold a traumatic story without trying to make things better straight away or to fix it or to cure it, right? And, and so if that happens, you know, if somebody tells a traumatic story and their partner really isn't reacting well, it will create a new trauma or it will reinforce the original trauma. So at first I say, yeah, you have a new partner. Don't talk about the trauma. Definitely wait until you know that partner very well and until you trust them very well that they will be able to hold it. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. However, it is true that at the very beginning of a relationship, um, a lot of people put a lot of pressure on themselves to appear to be together and, and not damaged and not a victim. And, and so they don't have to do that either. They don't have to pretend either. Well, all that they can do is to say, hey, I'm just, I'm just me, you know, and, uh, and I come with sensitivities and vulnerabilities and quirkiness and um, you know strengths and um, and some some things I can talk about or other things I can't talk about and let's just get to know each other on that basis <laughs> and mm -hmm. I think that you know if you can be that kind of honest usually the partners that you're dating can actually relax because then they can think oh wow okay that's kind of like 
a well-rounded human being who's giving me the permission not to be mm -hmm. perfect. And so I can also relax with my own anxieties and insecurities and sensitivities. Mm. And so, and, and something I know that you have talked about before in terms of if people do decide to talk to partners is about kind of going into detail or not. And I think this is a question that quite commonly is asked is that how, if I am having this conversation with my partner, what do I tell them? How much detail do I go into? Do they need to know everything or not? Yes, most partners, they just don't need to know everything. And mm -hmm. it, it depends on the nature of the trauma. If the, uh, tra the nature of the trauma involves, for example, uh, other family members, and but then they don't want to be cut off from their family members, it might be hard for the partner to go to, say, a family event and knowing that in that event, there are three or four people that abused their partners when they were children, right? Mm. And that can be very difficult to manage. And is it important to know or not? It really depends from people to people. Some people think it will be very important for their partner to know the whole story, but sometimes it's not always necessary. What the partner needs to know, you know, when, when the person is really ready to tell the story, what the partner needs to know is the points that can be the, the live nerves that people can just step into without knowing. So for example, it could be some things like, um, don't, don't um, sneak up behind me without making any noise. You know, I just don't like when somebody mm -hmm. comes behind me, <laughs> right? Or it could be, don't, don't put a hand on my neck. I just don't like that. Mm -hmm. I just, that is, is always gonna be a no-go area. Or it could be, um, I just don't want uh, my birthday celebrated because my birthday is a moment of trauma. Mm -hmm. So those kind of things. So identifying triggers That's and right. being able to communicate those to partners. Yes, and to say, these are my sensitive areas. These are the bits that are no-go areas for me. It doesn't mean I'm damaged. It doesn't mean I'm broken. I just don't want those things in my life any longer. And for the partner mm. to clearly know those things would mean that then they can you know, navigate your life with each other uh, with avoiding the, those live nerves. Mm. And I think those triggers, that's something we talk about a lot in psychosexual therapy, isn't it, is identifying those triggers. So for some people, it might be being touched somewhere on their body. And it's about kind of identifying no-go zones or, you know, whether it's no-go zones or triggers or um, ha even if it's having safe words or code words or being able, you know, having a trusting relationship with a partner where you can say, no, or it's too much, or I can't do this. or um, And I suppose that's where the communication bit and those boundaries come in. Mm -hmm. But it, these, again, you know, we're not taught how to have these conversations about sex in easy circumstances, let alone in difficult or traumatic ones. Exactly. And, and also in terms of talking about it, it's important sometimes to really give the permission to people to say, it's okay not to tell everything. Because in some ways, uh, if you keep in a, an entire trauma secret, sometimes trauma thrives in secrecy. So you don't want to, mm. to say it's a secret. You don't have to keep it a secret. You can say, I have been abused. You know, make the secret not secret. And just by saying that, without telling the whole story, but saying I've been abused can be a real first point of healing. But you can also retain your entire control of, over what you disclose and what you don't disclose and your privacy, because privacy is different from secrecy. And it's totally okay to say, I'm happy to tell you I've been abused. I'm happy to tell you about what parts of my body I don't want to be touched, but I'm not happy to tell you 
all the details and I want to keep the details to myself. And that is, you know, people's rights to not disclose everything. And even if, even if somebody, even a loved one says, tell me what happened, it's, um, you know, you, nobody should feel p- pressure to tell the mm. whole story, even if they're being asked. And so if someone's partner is a survivor, is the best way of supporting them being with them like where they're at and respecting what they say or meeting them there. Yes, exactly. It's just to meet them where they're at, non-judgmentally. There might be some things that um, would make absolutely no sense to them, you know, thinking, oh gosh, my partner doesn't want to be touched in that way. I don't know why. It's something so simple and so easy. So it might not always make sense, but it's really kind of um, giving up to trying to make sense of everything. Right. And just to stay just to stay with with what it is. Okay, my partner says they don't want this to happen. Fine. I'll just take it as it is. I don't need to dig. I don't need to understand why. I don't need to for it to make sense to me. I just hear they don't want this to happen. So I won't do it. Mm, And I think that's the difficult thing, isn't it? Is we are so used to looking for the meaning in things and wanting to understand and needing to know why. But actually what we're saying is in these contexts, it's not necessarily about needing to know why. It's 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 almost the opposite. It's saying, okay, if that's what you need, okay, if that's what's going to work for you and then for us, okay, and not having to completely understand every every detail of why why that is. Exactly, and making it as part of this is who my partner is rather than to mm-hmm. say, this is a problem that needs to be fixed, or mm-hmm. this is my partner, but they have that going on for them. You know, because if you just make it as a, uh, if, you, if you start to talk like this, it really reinforces the message of, oh, there is something broken, there is something damaged, there is something that needs to be fixed. But for a lot of people, it's not really about fixing anything. It's just about being acknowledged that uh, they have a bruise or they have a scar or they have a wound and it, that needs to be taken care of. And that's, and that's part of what it's like to be with this partner rather than something something that's damaged. Mm. And as a survivor, how does someone restart their sex life or start their sex life? And, you know, I, I say kind of start their sex life because they might have been a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and those experiences would have been non-consensual and so then starting an adult consensual sexual relationship is something different Mm -hmm. but how do how do people start to navigate sex sexuality their, their sex lives or continue to navigate them or navigate them after a sexual trauma or sexual event? Yeah, I say it's always one step at a time. And the first step is always a conversation first. And it means to sit down comfortably and give full attention to each other and to say, this is what I want to happen and this is what I don't want to happen very clearly. Um, So that's kind of very much uh, dialogues of consent and dialogues of boundaries. And to say, this is what it is for now. And because then to always leave room that it might be, might be different in a day's time, a month's time, a year's time or five years time. But for now, this is what needs to happen. And it's always one step at a time. And then it's, you make one step. Okay, this was okay. 
and then and then do we want, do we want to add something on or not? That's another conversation. And then yes, okay, let's add something on. What do we want to add on? Another conversation. And then they go to that step. And then after that, okay, that did not go so well, or that went well, but this other bit didn't. So let's just um, rethink. And so it's really about that very precise and fully explicit teamwork about about the sex life. Mm. And even though for a lot of people that might be listening to this, they might be saying, oh, that's really boring, or it's not going to work for me. What about the fun and the spontaneity of it all? You know, it's one of those things that I said to people that spontaneous sex is just a myth. You know, sex is planned. Whether you have a trauma or not, sex is planned. But when there is a trauma, sex has to be very planned and very explicit so that people can feel safe whilst they step into that sexual space to feel very safe because they know exactly the map of that moment and what's going to happen. I also say for a lot of people that um, putting penetrative sex off the table is actually really super okay because there's so many ways that you can have great, safe, pleasurable, hot sex without penetration. So it's one thing about society often that says, you know, you have to have penetrative sex. Penetrative sex is the real sex and the rest is second best. I also call it as a myth and to say, uh, you know, that that's just never needs to happen for good sex. Mm. And I think I'm, again, this is a really, there's no, there's no answer to it, but it's something that I want to nod to because I know it's, a thing that gets asked all the time is this idea of like how long will it take me to in lots of people's words get better feel normal feel like myself again or be able to have a sex life again and the answer to that I think we both know but I think it's a good thing to kind of feel like we've at least answered is in your own time each person each individual based on everything you know their life story their life experiences where they're at now their current context the support they had the support they want to get there there is no one size fits all approach to that exactly absolutely in your own time and also uh, sex life is always evolving whether there's been trauma or not getting in the way there's it's sex life is always evolving the way that people are going to have sex Today they're not gonna have this they're not, not gonna have the same sex in ten years from now because simply because we age and because we experience new things and because some of our erotic mind changes in terms of what turns us on or what we're interested in sexually or erotically. So because it changes all the time anyway, we have to keep in touch with it, right? If we don't keep in touch with it, we can become outdated and that's when we can have sexual problems later on. So with um, with sexual trauma, it's kind of like the same process. There's nothing that um, needs to be done drastically differently rather than being more mindful. But it's just, just the same thing, keeping in touch with what is going on in your body, what's going on in your mind, and making sure that every time what feels right and safe and, and a turn on is aligned with what you do in the bedroom. Mm. And where can people who want support go? You know, obviously we have um, an amazing body of psychosexual therapists um, through COSRT, the College of Sexual and Relationship Therapists, who we're both accredited by. There are also organisations like UKCP, again, which is a body of therapists um, and psychotherapists. But are there specific 
um, charities or organisations that people can, if they're thinking that they want to start getting more information or more help, reach out to specifically? Yes, there are a charity organisation, I think it's called Trust House, and I think they have uh, regional branches, so there could be, it could be like Trust House London maybe, or Trust House uh, Berkshire, Trust House Hampshire, I don't know. So those kind of, so I think they, they have uh, the local branches, but Trust House is one of the a big organisations where people can come in and get counselling, uh, either at low cost or even for free for people who have been sexually abused. And uh, but if you Google um, uh, help for sexual abuse, you, there, there will be quite a, a range of organizations that can help either on the practical level or on a psychotherapeutic level um, working with, with sexual abuse. Some are specialized in working with sexual abuse with women only, and others will be uh, accepting male referrals as well. Um, there is... Um, uh, survivors UK who specialize in male uh, survivors of sexual abuse. So there are quite a few. And but to be to be honest, uh, with this world changing and financial crisis coming, I find it very hard to keep in touch with the charities that are still going and the charities that are closing down and those that are emerging. So uh, don't take my words for it. Just do just do research. But uh, they are out there. There are there there is support out there. And there are also things like helplines. So, for example, like Rape Crisis has helplines. Um, so I think that the key message here is reach out to these organisations. And they have the most amazing people organising them, working for them, managing them, volunteering with them. Um, and, you know, I think don't you know, these charities are there, these organisations are there for those reasons and to to support people so please don't feel like you you can't reach out to them and the college of sexual and relationship therapist has as we said an amazing repertoire and range and directory of therapists and if you want to talk about sexual trauma specifically and you want to find a therapist specifically look for someone who has trauma training look for someone who has done a specific training in that who you can trust to kind of go on that journey with you but also something I talk about a lot is find a couple of people that you think that you could work with and ask them for an initial phone call or send them initially and see how you feel talking to them as a start of that process because as we know you know a lot of therapy is done in the relationship between client and therapist. Yes, it's very, very important that you feel that you can trust your therapist and that you have a good feeling about being uh, engaging with your therapist, whether it's online therapy or in the same room. Uh, absolutely. Yes. Very, very important. Amazing. And um, so thank you so much for sharing all of this with me. I know this is, for me, I've, I try not to shy away from these more, I suppose, taboo or difficult topics. And I think that it's really important that we have them to continue that conversation, but also to make sure that people feel that their experiences are acknowledged and are heard. Um, but please tell everyone where they can find out a bit more about you. You can uh, visit my website. That's uh, my name, sylvaneves.co.uk. And uh, I'm also on Instagram, uh, sylvaneves psychotherapist, and on Twitter. I'm around, so you can uh, always follow me and find me and send me an email. And I'm always happy to uh, respond to my emails and to refer you to some of my trusted colleagues. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for your, your time, your experience, your wisdom, um, as always. And... 
I hope that we have helped at least one person today in understanding a bit more about this. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions. If you'd like to join us for more conversations, you can click subscribe on either Apple or Spotify podcasts. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review.